0: Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian Studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu. For all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation.
1: Our very first guest speaker, Dr. Emmanuel Kim, is an associate professor of Korean literature and cultural studies at George Washington University. He is a specialist in North Korean literature and cinema. His research focuses on the changes and development, particularly in the representation of women. Sexuality and memory of North Korean literature from the 1960s to present day. The recent book *Rewriting Revolution: Women, Sexuality, and Memory in North Korean Fiction* explores the complex and dynamic literary culture that has deeply impacted the society. Current research is on North Korean comedy films and the ways in which humor has been an integral component of the everyday life. By exploring comedy films and comedians. Dr. Kim looks past the ostensible propaganda and examines the agency of law doctrine. Dr. Kim, welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for being here today.
2: No, thank you very much.
1: So as you share your valuable insights on the Korean literature for our audience, do you mind sharing a little bit about your journey with us on how you started focusing your literature or research on North Korean literature?
2: Sure. So uh, while I was doing my PhD Korean literature. All the courses that I've taken uh, basically dealing with South Korean literature. So I asked myself, well, there must be North Korean literature. And I asked some of my professors, they were not really familiar with uh, not only the existence of North Korean literature, but even how to go about it. So I decided to look into North Korean literature. And the way I did that was I had to go to Korea to do field research. And when I went there to the National Library, there was a whole section of North Korean literature. So I basically sat down and started reading from the 1960s all the way to present day. And that's how my dissertation was formed. And I am- I
1: recently had an opportunity to work sit at one of your workshops. And you did mention that Specifically in the U.S., there are a lot, of, a lot of researchers focusing on Korean literature. So do you think that's improving today? Or?
2: Yes, I think so. I think there are a lot of young PhD students who are interested in North Korean culture and are exploring the literary world and the cinematic world. So yes, I, I do believe there are or there will be a new generation.
1: Good. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So my next question for you is how is the historical context influenced the the literature?
2: Right. So during the colonial period in the 1920s, 30s, and all the way to 1945, there were a lot of progressive thinkers, progressive artists, many of whom were socialists or had at least socialist meanings. And they formed a huge literary or artistic group. And you know, really wanted to inform the people of this kind of idea. Uh, Well, the Japanese didn't like that. And so they pretty much did a witch hunt, eliminated all these artists. Knowing that the artists, many of them went up to the north, which is now North Korea, and settled in areas like Pyongyang, Manchuria, and even Shanghai. So they kind of had a like a diaspora spreading uh, they went to different areas to really practice their art and after the second world war when japan surrendered to the us and gave back korea to its people uh, that's when the national division happened and many artists who resided in Pyongyang just remained there and thought that this was going to be the happening place uh, to really push their artistic work. And that's sort of the beginnings of this kind of socialist movement in North Korea. And of course, once the Soviet Union occupied North Korea, it just made a lot of sense that they continued this work. But today, North Korea, it's very difficult to say that it's a socialist slash communist country. In their literary works, they continue to use terms that are what we would consider socialists or communists. Uh, They attack the bourgeoisie. Uh, They don't like landowners. They're talking about the working class. Uh, And Kim Jong-un thinks that he's part of the working class and he convinces his people that I'm the same as you. So even in their constitution, this kind of socialist rhetoric still exists. However, looking at it today, it's very difficult to say it's a socialist country. And so that's sort of the historical context. Once North Korea became uh, its own nation state uh, in 1948, from then on, uh, they started practicing socialism. Uh, they studied Marxism, Leninism, and really tried to become this a stronghold of socialist arts, imitating the Soviet Union. But by the end of 1960. Things started to change. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of the historical context.
1: Mm-hmm. If I'm not wrong, I believe it's called the Social Realism.
2: Yeah, Socialist Realism, <laughs> yes. yeah. So that's from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And North Korea tried to imitate Soviet Union Socialist Realism, mm-hmm. especially in the 1960s. So their literature and their film reflected this kind of Socialist Realism. That really had this kind of sense of community, the working class, eliminating the bourgeoisie and the landlords and anyone who would be considered a capitalist. But when you continue to produce that kind of literature and film, uh, it gets a little redundant and boring. Well, the people have recognized this. In fact, Kim Jong-il recognized this. So he decided to change it. Well, for him, it was for the good. But for people, I believe it was for bad. Right? The literary field and the culture there just really turned for the worse. And it was really unfortunate. I mean, that was in the late nineties.
1: So do you think the Korean state attempted to control the literature? And in what ways has the Korean public resisted state sponsored literature?
2: Right. So the party would project this kind of propaganda, by saying to the people that we need to do this, telling the people that the party knows best. And as long as the people follow, this country will become socialist parent. Now, within the party, the government system, there are uh, different departments that handle literature, and so forth, all the cultural arts, what we would call censors. And so that department, handled by a few party officials, would oversee How literature is written, how film is produced, how paintings are painted. And if it's not to their liking, they'll cut it off or they'll edit it. That kind of system has has been around in North Korea since the beginning, really modeling after the Soviet Union. Where it became really bad was when Kim Jong-il took over that and he decided, look, I want literature. I want film to be done this way, my way. That's when everything went bad.
1: So, is censorship uh, an issue even
2: today in Korea? No, very much so, very heavy censorship. So, a few things: you cannot criticize the leader, you cannot criticize the party, you cannot criticize the country. However, you can criticize the party officials. Interesting. Yeah. So, you can't you can't say the party is terrible, the party is ruining our lives. Can't say that, but you can point to certain high ranking officials and say. Look at these people. These people are too bureaucratic. Their pompous attitude, uh, it's their bourgeois lifestyle that is ruining the lives for the rest of us. You can do that, but you cannot criticize the real upper echelon, the leaders. You can't criticize
1: them. That's interesting. (laughs) Thank you so much for giving us an example and making it more clear. In what ways has the Korean literature been used as propaganda?
2: Many ways the party thinks that it knows best. So it will advertise certain slogans. So for example, right after the Korean War, or even during the Korean War, sorry, there would be this propaganda of anti-Americanism. So the North Koreans blame America for starting the Korean War. So there was a lot of anti-American propaganda during the 1950s. And then come around 1960s, you have this kind of, let's, build a socialist paradise. Let's work a little bit harder. I know you're tired. I know we just ended the Korean War and everyone's beaten up, but let's, let's work a little bit harder. And the late 1950s and the 1960s was a period of reconstruction. So there was a lot of propaganda going on through the literature and film yeah. of characters, protagonists, who are really putting their effort into rebuilding the country. In the 1970s, there was this three revolutions campaign, which is ideology, technology, and culture. So the party wanted all the citizens to know the party's ideology, pretty much Kim Il Sung's ideology. They got, or they're slowly removing Marxism-Leninism out, and they're implementing Kim Il Sung's ideology. So that you had to know. Everyone had to memorize it. Everyone had to basically recite it by heart. Technology. Uh, North Korea was heavy on expanding their, or developing their technology. They wanted to be better than South Korea. South Korea was actually doing the same thing at the time. They were rebuilding the country. The two leaders, Kim Il-sung and Park Jong- hee in South Korea, were working really hard. Sorry, having the people work really hard. Uh, and finally, culture was a huge thing for Kim Jong-il who wanted everyone to recognize his father, Kim Il-sung, as the ultimate leader of the country. And so all the cultural products, like literature, film, arts, uh, name it, everything had to reflect the leader. And that is sort of where we are today in terms of, well, all literature and all film in North Korea must glorify the leader. Well, it wasn't always the case. And that's sort of where people missed the mark they think that all literature and film glorified the leader from the very beginning and that's actually inaccurate so it was when Kim Jong-un took over that things just had to glorify and that's why I say it it, it turned for the Mm worse.
1: so that actually does lead me to the next question do you think that Korean literature has been used as a form of control?
2: yes whatever that means, control is a Funny word because I don't know how much literature can actually control people because that sort of has the connotation of North Korean citizens are automatons waiting for the next directive to come and it will tell them to make a left turn here or something like that, right? Uh, no, literature doesn't have that kind of power. The function, I would say, of North Korean literature, or for that matter, in any culture really, is to find this kind of common sentiment that people share. And one of the methods in North Korea is nationalism. So they emphasize nationalism and rhetoric in literature and art reflect this kind of we are a superior people. We are, it's like the sort of Nazi Aryan race rhetoric. And everyone else is terrible. And when you sort of plant that kind of ideology in the literature and film, and you see it over and over and over again, you tend to believe it. You tend to believe that your culture, your race is superior to others. And I would say literature and arts in that sense has a very influential appeal to the people. I'm not sure if it controls them. I'm very wary of that term. I don't believe the North Koreans are mindless. I don't think they are at the hands of the party uh, and, and whatever the party says they do. When you explore their culture deeply, you realize that there are a lot of resistance as well. And there's so many fascinating stories within the literary world where writers have resisted the party demands and as a result been kicked out and to me those are interesting stories because it really shows the human quality of these writers they are state employees right so they must do what the party tells them to do but not all of them right and thank god not all of them do that right because otherwise the theory of the party controlling the people would be correct and i just i never believed that and Yes. After interviewing many writers in North Korea, it really shows that there is that human quality that enables them to question and resist the party. I'm not going to go so far as to say that they challenge it and they subvert it and they write dissident literature. That is a possibility, but I'm not going to go that far.
1: Maybe the right term would be influence, if not for control?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, propaganda simply means advertising, Mm -hmm. especially in Spanish, right? Propaganda just means advertising, commercial, right? So in in the capitalist world, we call it advertisement and commercials. In in the socialist communist countries, they call it propaganda. Propaganda always has a negative connotation. Whenever we say commercial, we don't think of commercial being a negative connotation, but it definitely influences us, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it impacts the culture, right? But it shows what is happening, what's current and fashionable today, what people should buy. I mean, you know, we criticize, for example, we criticize North Korea for not just North Korea, but socialist countries for being controlled by the party and they have no freedom of choice. There's no options. Everyone's dressed the same way, which is incorrect. By the way, not everyone's dressed the same way. <laughs> but we have these kind of negative images of socialist countries. But if you if you go to North Korea, it's clearly not. And whenever I talk to North Koreans, they always ask. Me, why do you guys have so many cereals? And I never really thought about that until you step out of your own country and you look at your own supermarket and you realize that you have a whole aisle for cereal. And I'm thinking, why do we need to have so so many different kinds of cereal? I don't eat any of these anyway. And it gives you this false sense of freedom of choice, but really only like two or three major companies are owning. So all the money is going to one big corporation anyway. And they're giving the consumers a false sense of uh, options. You can see it in both ways. Yeah, so commercials don't really control, but definitely, as you say, influences.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that with uh, various examples, especially considering that audience, uh, teachers or students, among others, of course, I think it's really important for them to know the differences and use it in uh, the right way to impart knowledge. So... Going to the last section, as an expert in this field, what resources would you suggest for teachers to use in their classroom regarding uh, the North Korean literature?
2: This is the most difficult part because the problem has always been with translation. And there aren't many translated works available, like on Amazon or something. And so I'm working on a translation, a novel, another colleague of mine, we're working on a collection of short stories. We hope that these will be published. The novel that I translated will be published soon. Uh, but yes, there is a dearth of literary works out there. It's really unfortunate. But there's a reason for that. So even in South Korea, North Korean literature was prohibited from being read by the government until the late 1980s. Scholars have been sneaking in to read North Korean literature, but it was at, always at their own risk. The constitution of law, the national security law says, we will imprison you if we catch you with North Korean materials, if you disseminate them. or whatever. So for so long, North Korean literature has been in sort of uh, the dark. People never realized that there was even North Korean literature. So even in South Korea, most people, even today, hardly know about North Korean literature. So if South Korea doesn't know much about North Korean literature and they're next door neighbors, it's really difficult for the United States to know anything about North Korean literature. Besides, you need translators translators. Right. You need translators. Now, North Korea has their own department that translates North Korean literature, and that's run by the party. Well, clearly, if it's run by the party, then they want the works that the party thinks is worthy to be translated. translated, And I'm going to tell you this right now. Those works are terrible. Okay, they're boring. They are what we would call like ultra-nationalistic, ultra-glorifying the leader. These are the works that people criticize North Korean literature. And they base it all on these kind of works. And we have to realize that there is a whole world beyond that small sampling of literary works. That really talk about everyday life, other aspects of Korean culture. If there's a whole there's a whole different sub-level of literary works that people around the world would never know because all the party produces is those kind of heavy ultra nationalistic literary works. And if people just read that sampling from the party, then they'll just assume that all of North Korean literature is just like that. And that couldn't be farthest from the truth. So The works that I'm translating and the works that my colleague and I are translating, these are works that really reveal the everyday
1: life. And
2: these are fascinating.
1: That's actually wonderful that all of you are coming up with more content. Do you mind sharing the name of the publication so that our audience, once it's published, probably can buy it? Where can they find it?
2: Right. So the novel that I translated will be available on Amazon. In fact, if you just type in my name uh, on Amazon, the novel will pop up. Okay. Uh, it's called Friend, and it's by a best-selling author in North Korea. Uh, he's still alive. I met him a few years ago, mm-hmm. and he was very excited that his novel was going to be translated. It's already been translated in French, and so now I decided to convince the American public or American publishers to publish this novel. And it's about divorce, the problems with divorce, marital problems in general. It's a a fascinating story, one of my favorite stories. But there are so many like that. There aren't too many novels that really have that kind of dramatic impact, but this one certainly has that. uh, and It's a fan favorite in North Korea. He's like a superstar.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that here, and especially considering our audience is going to be very beneficial. Any other final words for our audience listening to our podcast?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really looking forward to next year because word on the street, uh, North Korea is going to change. I don't know how much they're going to change and I don't know what change really means. It could be ba- little baby steps. But I'm looking forward to this change. And I think with this whole Trump administration and the Moon Jae-in administration in South Korea, I think those three leaders kind of have this strange chemistry that no one could really explain. And it's working for some reason. And I hope that something good will come out of this, all these summit meetings and and visits to North Korea. I hope something good will come about it because I, I think... North Korea is really looking for change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just read this morning that China was going to uh, really invest in a wireless uh, network in North Korea. So already so many North Koreans have mobile phones. Mm-hmm. So all they need is just Wi-Fi access and hopefully that will bring about change. But when I first visited North Korea back in 2008, me and a few other uh, scholars on that trip kept on emphasizing to the North Korean tour guide and the other North Koreans that you guys need the internet. And 11 years later, finally something is happening. Hopefully something happens sooner and I hope that the North Koreans will really embrace the this country. Kind
1: of yeah, Definitely. Yeah. I think internet's ruling the world. Technology is taking over. And I really hope that North Korea Faces this, embraces this change in a positive way. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for sharing all your thoughtful responses. And I'm sure the audience will enjoy this episode. And it would definitely serve as a great resource for catered 12 teachers and students who are learning more about Korean literature. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc at gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.